The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take your Bibles out, if you would, please, and open them to the Old Testament, to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 10. Tonight we are going to look at uh, this passage from the Old Testament. And as the Apostle Paul said, the Old Testament is good for our learning. There are many people, of course, as we know, that were saved under the preaching of Paul. And uh, he didn't have anything to use but Old Testament scripture. Now, I will say this, that the book of Matthew was written by the time that Paul wrote his first epistle, but Matthew wasn't widely circulated. So when the Apostle Paul preached, he pulled out Old Testament Scripture, and that's what he taught people. He taught people about Christ from the Old Testament. Now, here's what he wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. In his commentary on that verse, William MacDonald wrote, This quotation from the Psalms reminds us that the Old Testament scriptures were written for our learning. While they were not written directly to us, they contain invaluable lessons for us. As we encounter problems, conflicts, tribulations, and troubles, the scriptures teach us to be steadfast and they impart comfort. Thus, instead of sinking under the waves, we are sustained by the hope that the Lord will see us through. A couple of weeks ago on our Lord's Supper night, we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul added this little bit of information to what he says about the Old Testament. He said, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now as I mentioned in that sermon, as we look at... um, Israel in the wilderness, the things that they went through, really the whole history of Israel, we can take that and compare it to the pitfalls that we find in the Christian life, and we learn to avoid falling in those holes by looking at what happened to the children of Israel. So the Old Testament uh, contains a lot of concepts, a lot of negatives, really, uh, lots of stories about uh, troubles and judgment. But there's also some very positive things that we can take out of the Old Testament. And I think that one of those positives is what we find right here in the text that we're going to read tonight in 1 Kings chapter 10. And this might be just a a little bit of an unusual application of this text, but I think it teaches us how that, as Christians, we can learn to influence others for Christ. How can we influence people in the right way for Christ? Now, you know, or perhaps you know, uh, maybe you don't know, but there are many, many Christians, especially among us as Baptists, that resist the term lifestyle evangelism. They resist, uh, well, it's also called relationship evangelism, and what they prefer is confrontational evangelism. And that's where you go to the center one-on-one that you talk to that person and uh, uh, give them the gospel of Christ. And uh, with a very direct method, you speak to them uh, through the gospel. Well, looking at the Old Testament, we know that there wasn't any such thing as door-to-door visitation in the Old Testament. You're not going to find that there. 
But that doesn't mean you don't find any evangelism in the Old Testament. And I think that the way that we find it in Old Testament Scripture primarily is through the lifestyles of God's people. That you had to look and see what was God doing for his people. And that's something that very strongly influenced others to have what Israel had. Well, there is, of course, a lifestyle for Christians. And when Peter wrote to the Jews about having their manner of life that's honest among the Gentiles, what he meant was that you need to live your life in good works so you can show what the Lord's done for you. Jesus essentially said the same thing in Matthew 5:16 when he said let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven. So I don't know what you call that kind of encouragement anything other than lifestyle evangelism. Now of course we do believe also in confrontational evangelism but there's a way that a Christian needs to live. There's a lifestyle that we need to live and we can influence others for Christ with that lifestyle. Well, as I was thinking about this, uh, my mind went to uh, Dale Carnegie's book that was written in 1936, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that's a book that's been used for many years in the corporate world. But I think that you can look at the, or listen to the title of that book, and very well you can see it does have a Christian application. That what we should try to do is to win our friends to the Lord and to influence other people for Christ. Now, what I'd like to show you tonight from here in 1 Kings is how that King Solomon's servants, how his servants and then King Solomon himself influenced a very special person in his day. Now, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train that bare spices and, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king, which he told her not. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom in the house that he had built, and the meat of his table, and the sitting of his servants, and the attendance of his ministers, and their apparel, and his cupbearers, and his ascent, by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom." Howbeit, I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore made he thee king to do judgment and justice. And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices, very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these, which the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Now, verse number 13. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty, so she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now let's go back up to verse number 1, and this is the main part of our text. 
And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And we all know that Solomon's claim to fame was his wealth and his wisdom. Now, he wasn't only the wisest man that was in Israel, but he was the wisest person who has ever lived. And that exclusive reputation of Solomon's wisdom is what made the words of Christ in the New Testament seem so out of place and just really so unbelievable and so controversial because he said that he was wiser than Solomon. And when Jesus made that statement, that sounded crazy to everyone because nobody believed there's anybody that's wiser than Solomon. And especially not this, this poor carpenter who came from that mean little city that's called Nazareth. Well, Solomon was wise and wealthy. And in the story that we're reading here, it's very shortly after Solomon had come to power, but he's already gaining a, a, a very big reputation uh, he was the rock star of his day. I mean, he, was, he excelled in wisdom of all the kings that were around him, all the ancient kings of the world. There's nobody like Solomon. Nobody who has the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon. And the stories that came out of Israel about Solomon were so unbelievable that they caught the attention of an Arabian queen. And we wonder, who is it that told the queen about Solomon. How did this, this queen from such a distance ever learn about Solomon? And the answer to that question shows us the power of personal influence. Now, I want to consider three applications of this scripture that show us how important the right kind of influence is for the cause of Christ. Now, first we would notice how the queen was interested what is it that drew her attention, or how was her attention drawn? I mean, the Scripture does tell us that she heard of the fame of Solomon, and because of that, she came to prove him with hard questions. Now, there are actually three important words in that statement. She heard, she came, and she proved. And how she was interested is summed up in those three words. Now, there, there are many people that believe that what Solomon had done was he had sent ships down the coast of Arabia for trading, and the men who were on those ships, I mean, the ones in charge of those ships, of going and getting all these different things from uh, these different countries where they visited, they were always talking about their king. In the 22nd verse of the chapter, it talks about a navy. Actually, verse number uh, 11, I think, also talks about the navy. That's the navy of Hiram. But Solomon had his own navy. In verse 22, it tells us about Solomon's navy. So he sent these ships and and uh, the people that were on those ships, that manned the ships, talked about their king. And it was through that that this queen became interested when she heard stories that were coming out of this foreign land about this king. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, that she was engaged. She was engaged by this, by what she heard. The queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Here are Sir, uh, Solomon's servants that are on these ships and they're so full of the glories and the virtues of their king that they simply could not stop talking about him. I'm sure that they said, you have never seen what we have in Israel. You've never seen anything like this before. You've never seen the wealth that we have in our country and you've never seen a king like we have. We have a king that's the wisest of all the world. And they continued to talk about, about Solomon and how great a king that he was. 
I think the Queen of Sheba heard that, and she must have felt that if his servants can't talk, stop talking about him, then surely here is somebody that I need to meet. Here's a man who's worth a meet and a greet. I need to know something about this man that the, that's so special that his servants just can't stop talking about him. And friends, I do think that that's how we ought to feel about our king. And, and I'm not talking about an earthly king. I'm not talking about a president. I mean, I'm sure that I couldn't excite you very much to talk to you about President Obama tonight. You don't want to hear about that. But our king, our great king, he's somebody worth talking about. He's someone that's worth telling people about, talking about all the wonderful things that he's done for us. And when we talk about Jesus Christ, the one who is our Savior and our King, I believe that that will begin to interest people in what we have to say. You know, I, I, I was thinking about Jorge uh, um, to, to just today and yesterday as I was thinking back over this sermon and the story that he told me about Jim Love and uh, how that Jim was witnessing to him and, and Jim was on him all of the time and Jim was consistent about that and Jim was just giving him the gospel and, and Jorge told me, he said, finally, I've got to find out what this guy's all about. What's he talking about? And so Jorge was just telling me the other day, he said, I started reading the Bible. I just wanted to find out what is he talking about? Well, when you act like that, when you act like there is something interesting, when there's something here that, that's worth knowing and you talk about it, I think that other people are going to become interested in hearing about Jesus. Now, we can talk about it, but we also have to live it. None of us are, no one is, actually I should say, no one is going to believe that Jesus has done anything for us at all if we don't live like he's done something for us. So you can gauge the interest of people that you want to influence by speaking well of the Lord. Now next we notice that she was excited about what she heard. Our text says that she came. Having gained interest in this, having he heard the servants, there was excitement in what the servants said. There was enthusiasm in that that convinced her she needed to meet Solomon. Now, she was an unbeliever. She was not yet converted, and the enthusiasm of Solomon's servants made her excited enough that she was willing to undertake a long, wearisome, dangerous journey to meet Solomon. Now, the distance that she had to travel was about 1,500 miles, and some have said that traveling in a caravan, such as what we read there in verse number 2, that traveling in a caravan for uh, 1,500 miles would take about 75 days. That's 75 days one way to reach Jerusalem. So what we're really talking about here is a five-month journey, not including the time that she spent in Jerusalem. It's a five-month round trip to go and meet this king. I think that you'd have to be pretty excited about something to, to do that. I mean, that, that you would hop on a camel for 150 days. Uh, you'd have to be pretty excited about something. And I think that that tells us that there's a, an excitement that we can generate in people by our service for the Lord. When we come to church, that we need to be excited about what we do. We, there needs to be some interest in what we do. Uh, we ought not to let visitors come into our church and have them think that or get the impression that we just don't care about what's going on here, that we're just not really a whole lot interested in what's happening here. Uh, many churches have a charismatic influence, and from the time that you walk in the door, everybody's hopping and jumping, and people are being pushed out the door and falling over the chairs, and it looks like there's a lot that's going on. 
We don't actually have to do that to show our excitement and know what we do here. We don't actually have to have that. We can show excitement in what we do by just going through the things that we do in our normal worship. When it comes time to sing, what should we do? Stand up and sing. I mean, lift up your voice. Let people hear you around you. Don't be afraid of what your voice sounds like. I mean, for years, we had Jeff Chambly here, and he could have driven the whole church away with that voice. But we let him sing. I mean, you know, we really, we want to we sing out. You ought to do that when the, uh, when the song service is going on. And uh, I think that when I open up the Bible, I announce the Scripture, that this is where we're going to be studying. I think you ought to open up your Bible. I think you ought to be looking at that Bible and following along with that and see what the Scriptures have to say and act like you're interested in what's being said. And I don't tell you that you have to take notes. I think it's a good thing if you do. I do think this, that if there's a visitor that comes and sits next to you, I would be sure that I was sitting there with a pen in my hand and I would have that paper and I'd be filling out that paper. I'd be putting in all the blanks because I'd want to show that person we're getting something here that's worth listening to. This is worth it. So I want to write this down to make sure that I don't forget it. Sometimes when I'm watching... Uh, some of these preachers on television. I mean, I notice this all the time. Um, you know, they're taking these shots of the audience and you're watching Joel Osteen and there are people that are writing down what Joel Osteen says. What for? Why? I mean, I don't understand that part. But I do know this, when you come into the house of God and you hear the word that's being taught and you hear the truth that's being taught and you hear something about Christ and something that's going to help you grow in your Christian life, that's probably something you ought to write down. Probably something you ought to remember or have your own method, whatever that is of remembering what's being said. But I notice a lot of time when I'm preaching that people just hang their heads. They have a sour look on their face. Many of you, I keep telling you this all the time. I can tell when you're sleeping. I know. I see every one of you. I know when you're sleeping. And I'm, a lot of you, I'm more likely to catch you napping than I am listening. Well, that, that doesn't show anything. What you really need to do is see or listen to it. I'm not the greatest preacher in the world. I already know that. We all admit that. But what is being said needs to be heard because it's not me that's really speaking. When I'm reading to you from the Word of God, that's God talking to you. This is the Lord speaking to you. How can you be uninterested in a message that comes from the Lord? Those things don't add up. You, you can't sleep when the king has something important to say to you. Now, if you're not excited about Jesus, then how do you expect others to be excited about him? Well, we all know the example of Andrew, who, who was uh, the excited soul winner. Uh, when he met Jesus, he couldn't, re he couldn't rest until he went and told someone. So John records about him. He said, he first findeth... Now, this is as soon as he heard about Jesus. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted to Christ. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been to him? All this history of Israel, waiting for the Messiah to come. And Andrew says, he's here. He's here. You think he wasn't excited about that? I found the Messiah. What? He's not going to go sit in a corner somewhere and say, that's something I keep to myself. And let me just think about that for a little while. No, he wanted to tell somebody. So he went and told Simon. Do I have to tell you who Simon was? That's Peter, isn't it? He told Peter. Peter became the head of the list of every or is the head of every list of apostles that we have in the Bible. How important was it for Peter to hear the message of Jesus Christ? 
His brother was interested. He was excited about that, and so he went and told. And I think that you'll find this. If you have uh, just strong feelings about Christ, the things that you want to talk about, those feelings become infectious, and they will raise the interest of those who want to know what is all this excitement about. So... When the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, when she saw the servant's enthusiasm for him, she came to find out about him. Who is this guy? And our text says she came to prove him with hard questions. Now, a person whose interest has been generated by your excitement will most likely want to find out what's the excitement about. And they'll want to prove what your claims or prove what you say. So the queen came, and she came with hard questions. She wanted to find out who is Solomon, what's he all about, what makes this king so special. And because there was something behind the claims, she wasn't going to be disappointed. This is what Spurgeon said. He said she wanted to prove whether he was as wise as she had been led to believe, and her mode of proving was by endeavoring to learn from him. She put difficult questions to him in order that she might be instructed by his wisdom. And when you tell your friends about Jesus, you don't have to be afraid that they're going to come and ask him anything that he can't answer. They're, they're not going to ask any hard questions that he doesn't know the answers to. He, he, they'll learn from him if you'll just bring them to Jesus. So you see what happens when you speak in glowing terms about the eternal king? You raise the interest of people. They'll want to find out what is he all about. And that's really the first movement in influencing a soul for Christ. When people become engaged the, and they're excited, then the interest is conceived. And then when that interest is conceived, what does it do? It gives birth to an impression. It gives birth to an impression of who this Savior is. Now, the second thing we notice is how the queen was impressed. Now, verse 3 says, And Solomon told her all her questions. In verses 4 and 5, and when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. There was no more spirit in her. That, that, that means it just took her breath away. It took her breath away to see to see what Solomon had. Now, she was interested enough to come and to hear and to test him, and the queen was definitely impressed by what she saw. Now, verses 4 and 5 tell us that her greatest impression was the quality of life that she found in the king's palace. Now, she was a queen, of course. She was very well acquainted with all the privileges of royalty. But when she saw what Solomon had, it was so dazzling, the Scripture says it took her breath away. And she was convinced that, that what Solomon had and the way that his courtiers lived, we're talking about a whole different plane here, folks. This is completely different than anything she'd seen before. And I think that reminds us of our Christian lives. Is there something in your life that others see that tells them that you are living on a whole different plane than which they live? Are they impressed by the things that motivate you? Are they surprised or impressed about the things that cheer you, that make you happy, that makes life enjoyable for you? Oh, they'll notice that you don't do the same things that they do. You're not in the same place as they are. 
And yet, you're happy. You enjoy yourself. You're, you're living life to the full. And that's because of the person that you know. It's because you know Jesus Christ. Now, people ought to be impressed with your life because life in Christ is far beyond in comparison to the life of a lost person. And the way that you live is going to leave a lasting, indelible impression on others. And you just have to make sure that it's the right impression that you leave. Now, there are three words that describe the things that impress the Queen of Sheba. The first word is sagacity. Someone told me the other day that they needed a dictionary when they listen to the sermons to understand them. I don't want you to need a dictionary. I want you to increase your vocabulary. Sagacity simply means wisdom. It means to be able to evaluate using wisdom. And do you remember the act of wisdom that, that put Solomon on the map with his own people? I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but you can read it in the third chapter. And it's all about Solomon splitting a baby in half to give one half to a woman who claimed to his mother and the other half to a woman who claimed that he was his mother. And people were just amazed at the way Solomon figured that thing out and knew exactly who the mother of that child was. Well, Solomon was good at this. He was wise. He could evaluate very difficult situations and he could determine the best way to go. Now, notice in verse number four, the queen of Sheba saw all the wisdom of Solomon. Now, we notice that the thing that impressed her is not his knowledge. It doesn't say that she was impressed with his knowledge. It's wisdom that impressed her. Wisdom is different from knowledge, I think you know. Wisdom is actually knowledge applied, or perhaps we would state it better this way, that wisdom is the right use of knowledge. And she was impressed by the application of the knowledge that he had to everyday life. And you know that reading the Bible and understanding the Bible and gaining the knowledge of the Bible will allow you to use wisdom in the decisions that you make in everyday life. But you have to have the knowledge too, don't you? You have to know what the Bible says and the Word of God teaches you how to apply that to everyday life. Well, she was impressed by that. She's impressed by the way that he applied his knowledge. Now, when, when people become more concerned about knowledge and they have knowledge without wisdom, then they become educated fools. Now, we know a lot of educated fools, don't we? Our colleges and universities are full of those kinds of people. They become so educated that they leave God out as the answer for things that are inexplicable. They never consider God. And when you come to that place, your knowledge is of no value. It's not any help to you. There's no comfort in that kind of knowledge. And so they have become so knowledgeable that they believe that all they are is just another life form. In other words, they're a slug with an education, just another life form. Now, the evolutionist wants you to think that man is just another of the animals. I mean, have you heard that? I mean, you hear it all the time. The human animal? How many times have you heard that? The human animal? And they want you to think that you're just an animal. You know there's a reason for that? Because animals aren't accountable. Animals don't have the reason that man has, and so they're not accountable to God, and this is what these people want. They don't want to be held accountable. So they're happy to be animals, just educated animals. They don't have anybody to answer to. 
Now, you think about what knowledge does to people. Uh, If you approach people with knowledge alone, usually it irritates them. The know-it-all, the know-it-all that, you know, always, always showing how much they know, that irritates people. People just get tired of that kind of stuff. And what you do is you drive people away. You make them feel inferior. They're, they're not so good. They're, they're stupid. You're smart and all that kinds of thing. But if you want to influence people for Christ, don't approach them with just your intellect. Don't approach them with knowledge. Approach them with wisdom as Jesus used wisdom in dealing with people. Now, many, many Christians have plenty of knowledge, but they're woefully short on wisdom. And I thought about that. Maybe that statement is not totally correct because I wish that Christians had a whole lot more knowledge than they do. If we had to give tests, many Christians would flunk Christianity. I mean, they're, they're, not, they're, you know, they're not going to make it to the next grade. They're just not. They're, they have no real knowledge of anything. Well, we need knowledge, of course. As I said a moment ago, we need to learn the Bible and we need the wisdom that comes with that. So wisdom is the sound or sane, balanced application of knowledge to everyday life. And that's the kind of lifestyle that impresses an unbeliever. So the Queen of Sheba was impressed with sagacity, the sagacity, the wisdom of Solomon. The next thing that impressed her is this word, or she looked at it, looked at Solomon. What impressed her was superiority, the superiority of everything that Solomon had. So she went into Solomon's house, and she found there's nothing second-rate here, nothing. The palace, the ministers, everything that takes place here is top-notch. And the Scripture says she saw the house that he had built. You can imagine being a queen. She also lived in a fine house. Oh, she's a wealthy queen. She lives in a fine house, but her house didn't come close to Solomon's. She was impressed by it, and she saw a house that was commensurate with his income, with his means, and with his position. You ever thought about what people see when they come into your house? Are they impressed with a superior touch of your home because it's a Christian home? Is your house neat and clean? That's a subject for another message, so I won't get into that. But... um, more importantly than those kinds of things, it's not really the appraised value of your home that matters. It doesn't matter which neighborhood that you live in. I don't care if you live in a gated community, and neither, neither does the Lord. That, that's not what impresses him. It's not about how much furniture you have in the house and how nice that is and how big is your big screen, your widescreen TV. That, that doesn't matter. More important in the home is the personal touch of a Savior of the Savior in a house that lives in harmony. So what about a house where a wife is in subjection to her husband? And what about a house where the husband loves his wife and and appreciates her and treats her like God says that she ought to be treated? And what about children that obey their parents and they participate in godly activities? What about children that act and look like They live in a Christian home. Are people impressed by your home? Do they want your relationship with the king of kings because you have a lifestyle that impresses them? Now here the scripture says that she was also impressed with the the food that was on his table. God had supplied Solomon abundantly with food and 
she was thankful for that, and she was thankful that God had given him these things. And I think about that as well. Are, are you thankful for what God gives you in your home? Are you thankful for the food that he supplies you with? Uh, do, you, do you sit down like a hog at a slop trough for dinner? And, or what? Or, or do you stop for a moment to give God thanks for the food that he's given? She was impressed with his servants. Verse 5 speaks of the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers. And what, what she was looking at there was the efficiency of this whole thing. How that household is run. She, she saw the willingness of, of those servants. She saw the patience that they had, the faithfulness of all the service that's done in Solomon's house. She looked at that and she was impressed by it. And there's a lesson there for us as well. Have you thought about your service? The superiority of your service? The way that you serve the king? Are, 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 are you content with just half-hearted service to the Lord? Just a little here, a little there. If it gets done, okay. If it doesn't, that's okay too. Are you, are you impressive with your service? Are, are you the kind of a Sunday school teacher that 10 minutes before class or ready to go to church, you've got to grab something and pull it together to teach the kids? Pioneer Club, same way. Is, is that the way service is? What, what about church? What about, what about just coming to church? What about showing up on time? What, what about, you know, do you, do you miss half the song service because you're too lazy to come on time? We need to think about that. Do you think Solomon would, Solomon would let his servants act like that? Would Solomon say, well, I don't care when you get here. It doesn't matter. Just show up sometime or another. No, I don't think, I don't think Solomon would be too pleased with that. I think we would find a group of servants with stripes on their back and probably some of them with their heads on chopping block. Oh, he, his servants were, in, were impressive with their service. Why? why? Why were they so concerned about that? It's because of the one they served. It's because the king, the king is top-notch. And his servants ought to be top-notch. It's the one that you serve. And you're, the way that you give service is indicative of what you think about the one that you serve. If you respect him, if you love him then you're going to give him the service that he requires, the right kind of service that shows that you respect him and you love him. Well, she was impressed with his servants. Why? They represent the king. So they're top-notch because the king is top-notch. And I'll remind you again about this, that a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said a greater than Solomon is here. And so if his servants were impressive, how much more ought we to be impressive in our service? Now, we're, we're going to get down to some nitty-gritty here, okay? Verse 5 says she was impressed with their apparel. Mm. She noticed the clothes that they wore. You know, how often are people impressed for good by seeing the clothes that you wear, how a Christian is dressed? Do you really think that a non-Christian is impressed by the extremes that many Christian people go to? The extremes in the dress that they have where they just don't look any different at all from a worldly person out there, you have no idea that they're a Christian by the way that they dress. Now, you, you know my method here. You know, I'm not a person that stays on the dress issues and things like that all the time. That doesn't mean I don't care about dress. 
I mean, I'm concerned. I, I try to preach it from a different angle, and I wish that it would have more effect on people. I don't want to make a rule for something. I want you to have it in your heart. I want to teach it to you in your heart and let your heart dictate your actions. And if your heart doesn't dictate your actions, it doesn't make any difference what you do on the outside. Did you know that? It doesn't make any difference because God's not going to respect it anyway. So I try to teach it from the heart. That doesn't mean that I don't care about the way that people come to church. A few years ago, well, I'll say this. You need to respect your surroundings, first of all. Respect your surroundings. Um, don't go half-dressed at the church. Don't come half-dressed. Don't go half-dressed anywhere, for that matter. But don't come to church half-dressed. Respect the surroundings. Well, a few years ago, I was several years ago, before I came pastor here, I spent a good deal of time in Florida, and I was attending uh, churches in Florida, just going around to different ones for the time that I was there. I did finally settle on one that I went to most of the time, but a lot of them I rejected because I was just appalled by the way that people went to church. I mean, you're in Florida, and so people dressed like they were going to the beach. I mean, they looked like they were going to the, ble to the beach. Now, I'll tell you this. When you come to church, put your pants on. You know, put your pants on, please. Flip-flops are not church apparel. Are they? Respect where we are. Flip-flops are not church apparel. Comb your hair before you come to If you got any, comb your hair before you come to church. You really should. I mean, come dressed for service. Now, I'm not talking about... You know, uh, I've talked with some people about, you know, well, I just got off work on Wednesday night and, and uh, I'm coming straight from work. I'm not talking about that. I mean, most of you don't go to work half-dressed, do you? So I know when you get here, you're not going to be half-dressed if you came from work. Why can't you have that much? Maybe not you. We're talking to, always talking to the wrong crowd on Sunday night, aren't we? So what you need to do is tell everybody what I said, okay? Just pass it around the church so everybody hears this. But if you wouldn't go to work half-dressed, why would you come to church that way? I don't understand that. I don't, I don't know what people are thinking. Queen of Sheba saw Solomon's servants, and, and you know how she could tell them from the beachcombers the way that they were dressed? She knew which ones were Solomon's servants because the way that they dressed, the way they carried themselves, they were a cut above the rest. When the English architect Sir Christopher Wren was directing the building of a cathedral in London, there was a journalist that came by and he, um, he asked three of the workmen the same question. He asked them this question, he said, what are you doing? And one of the workmen said, well, I'm, I'm working here, putting in all day for 10 shillings a day. And the other workman said, I'm putting in 10 hours of my life here every day. The third person that the journalist asked said, I'm personally helping Sir Christopher Wren construct one of London's greatest cathedrals. All of them were doing important work, weren't they? All of them were doing the same work. It was the last one, though, that had actually turned what he did into worship. I mean, he was doing something that counted, something that was worth it, and he had that kind of attitude. My work for the Lord counts for something. Didn't the Apostle Paul said that your labor for the Lord is not in vain? Give him good labor then. Because the harder that you work, the better that it's going to be. The more that you'll enjoy it, the more that you give to God, it's always going to be good. Now, that's how God's servants ought to look to, the, to our king. We ought to be impressive. Thirdly, the third thing about it, 
Wow, I'm running out of time. I've got to hurry here. Uh, spirituality. It's the spirituality of the king's life impressed her. Notice the last part of verse 5. It says, And his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord. His ascent by the way he went up into the house of the Lord. I mean, she saw the way that he went up. She was impressed by the spirituality of his life as he was giving service to the Lord. Now, I think what we see here is that she detected no, no uh, false piety. There is no hypocrisy in his service. The king's worship was real. Now, Bible scholars kind of argue over this. What is meant by the ascent by which he went up? Some say that means the procession. It means he put all of his servants together and, you know, he put on his kingly robes and the priests have their robes on and there's a procession that goes up to the temple and they're going to worship God. Some say that the ascent refers to just simply the viaduct that connected the temple to the, to the king's house. And that also was a very impressive thing. I mean, Solomon's house was hugely impressive, and the temple that he built was impressive. But it really doesn't make any di difference. Is he talking about the ascent, the, the people that go up with him, the, the regality of that, the procession? Uh, is it that, or is it the, the building itself, the viaduct? It really doesn't matter. The important point is that the king was, or queen was profoundly impressed by the meaning of it, by the reality of it, by the sincerity of it, seeing the way that Solomon worshipped his God. Is that the way it is when people look at your life? Is there hypocrisy in your life? Do you say one thing and you do another? Is the way that you act on Sunday, is that a lot different than what people see on Monday? You know, I talked a little bit about it this morning in the message. Um, people don't always act the same, do they? There are people that come in church and they pick up the song books and sing the song or they look at the screen and read the words there, pick up the Bible when we do the congregational reading and do it all. All of us do it the same. But then on Monday morning, they don't mind at all cursing a blue streak. Not quite what you would hear in church. And the question is, is your life hypocritical? And we know that churches are filled with hypocrites. We all are to some degree or another. But that's not the way we choose to live our life all the time. The queen found no hypocrisy in him. Well, she was impressed with his dedication to God. Now, you read the story of Solomon, and, and I, I wish that we could read about all of Solomon's life and find out that he stayed that way, that he was always that way. But actually, Solomon stopped doing the things that first impressed the queen. That's a very unfortunate thing. Eventually, what happened was the, the kingdom was torn in two. Solomon was the, last, the second and last king of the, of the United Kingdom. Well, in this threefold way, an impression was made on her so that we do read there was no more spirit in her. And do you know that's the place that you have to bring a soul to Christ? She saw all that Solomon had. Nothing was hidden from her. And she came away in spite of her wealth and her position. In spite of all that she had, she came away looking like a beggar compared to Solomon. And do you know that's the way that you have to bring people to Christ? They have to come to that place. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And a soul can never be, never be genuinely influenced for Christ until he comes to a place of a beggar. And she was impressed 
because there was nothing that she had that came close in comparison to Solomon. Now, thirdly and lastly, this evening, this, this application, and uh, I'll, I'll try to hurry for you. Thirdly, it's how the queen was influenced. Now, after she saw all that Solomon had and did, and after hearing him speak wisely, she told him the effect that it had on her, verse number 6. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom, howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. And then in verse 10, And she gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold, and of spices very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these, which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Now here I think we find a beautiful picture of salvation, a great picture of salvation. So let me finish quickly by giving you the effect that it had on her. The effect is her whole soul was one. All of her was one. Her mind, her heart, her will was one over. Now notice very carefully that first her mind was satisfied. She says, I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. So her mind was influenced. She came to Solomon with hard questions. And I think that she came with questions about a Lord that she didn't understand. She didn't know very much about. She asked him about the Lord. And verse number 1 says that, he, that she asked things about the name of the Lord. Do you know how much the Bible has to say about the name of the Lord? How, how, how big, how important is the name of the Lord when the Word of God says that he has a name that's above every name? He has a name that's the sweetest note in Seraph's song. Solomon actually built a house that was dedicated to the name of the Lord. This magnificent temple is dedicated to the name of the Lord. Look at it right quick. Just turn back to chapter 8 for just a minute. Look at this very quickly. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 22. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord. This is at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hand toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. And this is what drives our satisfaction with God. The satisfaction comes in that there is none like Him. There's none like Him. If you can't be satisfied with Him, you can't be satisfied. There's nothing like Him. So she saw the beauty, the opulence, the wisdom provided by the one and only true God, and she was satisfied that everything that she heard was true. And you can be sure of this, that when you bring a soul to Jesus... They'll be satisfied. You never have to fear that Jesus can't deliver. They're always going to receive more than they expected. Secondly, her heart was stirred. Now she saw it. It was proved to her. She says in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. So here we see she's moved, it appears, with some emotion in this, and also devotion. Her heart was influenced. You and I, we've seen many people that emotions begin to flow when you bring them to Jesus. I've seen tears flow down the cheeks of hardened sinners that are faced when, they, when they're faced with the splendor of Jesus and then they know that their sins have been forgiven. They become emotional. But emotional outbursts alone, that's not always a sign of repentance. 
You don't count on the, the emotions of the moment, but when a soul really trusts Christ, it goes beyond emotions. It goes to devotion. You can't be saved unless there's unreserved devotion to Jesus. And that's what I was talking about this morning as well. You, you can't say, I love Jesus, and don't act like you love Jesus. That, that, it doesn't compute. There, there's no type of Christianity like that. Christianity always produces, and love for Christ produces devotion. So the Holy Spirit comes to us with the good news of the gospel of Christ, and he stirs the heart up. And when the heart is stirred, the heart longs to have Jesus. And when this queen's heart was stirred, she praised God that he'd been so gracious to Solomon. And when a sinner's heart is stirred by the Spirit, they praise God for saving grace. And then, thirdly, her will was surrendered. Her will was surrendered. Notice what she does. She gave the king gold and spices. Gold, we think, well, you know, that, that's great. Uh, gold, that's, that's really a big thing there. But that's not really the greatest gift that she gave. It's not. Uh, the most precious gift that she gave was actually the spices. Uh, Solomon can get gold from a lot of different places. What he couldn't get was the spices that she had. I mean, she had spices that he can't get anyplace else. Now, that, that speaks of how we come to Jesus. We come to him in total surrender. We're going to give him everything. The, 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 the most valuable that we have, the most valuable thing that we have doesn't count unless we give it to Jesus. We, we, want, we want him to have it. Now, you can imagine that, that this queen comes in the presence of Solomon. She sees all that he has. She sees the apparel of his servants. She sees the opulence of the palace. She sees the food that's on his table. And she looks at that and she says, Oh, well walks away, has no, no lasting influence on there like it's of no value. Not a person who's seen it like she saw it. Not a person whose heart has been stirred. Not a person who's been enlightened by the presence of the great king. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes in that power that he has and he removes the scales from off of our eyes. And we see Jesus in a totally different light. We get a full glimpse of the Savior. And when you get that full glimpse, when the Spirit has removed the blinders from your eyes, there is no one who fails to go away saying, the half was not told me. I didn't realize what Jesus was really like. And nobody does until the Holy Spirit opens up the heart to the gospel. Then the evidence that she was truly influenced her mind is satisfied, her heart is stirred, her will is surrendered in those sweet spices of love. She just gave it all. Now, one last point to make tonight. This is the last blank on your listening sheet. When you leave all at the feet of the Savior, you receive more than you left. Verse 13 says, And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. And you see this? He gave her all her desire. He reciprocated in a measure that far exceeded what she gave. And that tells you that no matter what you bring to Jesus, no matter what you give, no matter how great that it is, he's always going to give you something better back. You cannot outgive God. He's always going to give you something better back. And so what I think we need to do is we need to learn a lesson about how to interest people, how to impress people, how to influence souls for Christ. That was the mission given to the servants of the king. Wherever we go, we ought to be like the servants of Solomon. Speak of the king 
that we serve. Speak well of the king that we serve. Now, I'll just say, perhaps your influence hasn't been good. Perhaps your influence has not been good. You need to understand that lifestyle evangelism is real, no matter how many critics there are, and how, no matter whether you believe it or not, it is actually real. The Apostle Paul said, here's what I do. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What we have to do is focus on that mark. And when we focus on that mark, that's when we're going to be influencing people correctly. The question for all of us as Christians is, are we doing that? A greater than Solomon is here. And the queen of Sheba reveled in the majesty of Solomon. How much more should we revel in the majesty of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for heaven's great king. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Words can't express what we've come to know about your saving grace and your mercy. And once we've found you, we know nothing else satisfies. And there is no person who truly knows you as Savior that doesn't find you, find in you all the wealth, so much wealth, so much blessing, so much grace that there's just no more spirit in us. Our breath is taken away by how great you are. Help us, Lord, to serve you as your people and to influence others in the right way for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.